you're between the ages of four and eight, you're excused to kids' club. If you didn't know this, I'm excited that we've been singing Even So Come. Uh, one of the reasons why we've been singing that song is starting to anticipate Christmas. Uh, one of the great celebrations of the church is to remember that God sent his son and will send him again. So we want to be a church that lives in expectancy. We want to be a church that remembers his first coming and looks forward to a second. And so next week we're going to start into a a four-week celebration of Advent. I think that's called the, the Advent of the King, celebrating the first coming and expecting the second. So we're going to keep looking towards that. This morning we're in our 10th and final week of a series that we've entitled Design and Deception. Considering God's design and Satan's work of deception. Over the last nine weeks we've discussed issues of life, identity, sexuality, singleness, marriage, family, work. If you've missed any of those, you can pick them up on our podcast. And this week we'll be considering the church. And as we've begun this series, we've started each and every week with Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is the beginning, and it's the beginning of our worldview. In the beginning, God. Not him, not me, but him. In the beginning, God. He is the creator, he is to be worshipped, and he is the king. And subsequently, and just as important, I'm a creature, I am a worshipper, and I'm not the king. We've repeated that every week. For the last nine weeks, to help drill in the idea that it's not about us, that it's about him. And when God created man, he gave him purpose, relationship, and boundaries. God gave us design. And immediately Satan stepped in and gives us deception. Satan challenged Adam and Eve with a question, ultimately pushing them to consider, is it about me? Is it about what I want Is it about what I need? Is it about my preferences? And ultimately, we see that it's sin that takes us to the end of that argument. To think, I deserve what I want. I should get what I want. We have focused much of this series around Judges 17.6. In those days when there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we find when we deny the king... We do what we want. When we deny the king, whatever is right in our own eyes is what we pursue. And it leads us to a path where we not only practice, but we start to believe the slithery lies of Satan. And when those lies go unchecked, it leads to all kinds of destruction. So here we are, unfolding the design of God and exposing the lies of Satan. So as we start in this morning, let me remind you again that the purpose of our series is to hold high the authority of God's word, to consider his design and his message, and to align ourselves primarily with him and with his word. For when we make it about us, when we make it about our agendas, our desires, our wants, and our needs, we're tempted to make us the king and miss that he is the king. And every week we've been reminded that it's 
our desire as a church to be challenged by the Word of God, to be challenged personally, remembering and stepping into this reality that as we hear the Word of God taught, it's ultimately for me to take, for me to consider, and for me to ask what God is teaching me, to take that step to apply it to my life before I look around and apply it to the lives of others, which we can easily all be tempted to do. And then to be reminded when we fall short, as we all do, that the grace of Jesus Christ abounds, forgives, renews, and always calls us away from sin. This morning, we're going to consider the church. Now, if you've walked through all these weeks, you've picked up on the subtle message. As we've walked through all these weeks, the message you've been given over and over again is, it's not about you. And yet we're tempted in each and every one of those situations and circumstances to want to make it about me. Because I really like me. And I really like the stuff I like. And I really like being comfortable. And I really like being in my comfort zone. And ultimately I really like me. And I'm guessing we're all the same way. We're wired the same way. Because we all struggle with sin the same way. So as we consider the church this morning, we're going to look at its beginning. The beginning in every other passage has taken us to Genesis. This week it's taking us into the book of Acts. So turn with me to Acts 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Red Pew Bible in front of you. We'll be on page 907. Follow along in God's Word. Acts 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place. We find that the, the Jesus has ascended. The disciples are together. We don't really know where, but we're celebrating Pentecost. It's the Feast of the Weeks. Some 50 days after Jesus has risen, these guys are gathered together. In verse 2, suddenly there came from a heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. We'll find walking through our Bibles that this event marks the beginning of the church. We're told that to anticipate it in a couple of different places. In John 14, 26, Jesus tells the disciples that after he leaves, he will send the Holy Spirit to teach them, to remind them of his words. In Acts 1.8, Jesus again reminds his disciples that the Spirit is coming. And here in Acts 2, we find that the third person of the Trinity comes and dwells with men. In fulfillment of the prophecy of the new covenant given in Jeremiah 31.33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And we find in this event of Pentecost that man's relationship with God changes forever. Because no longer is God at a place where we have to go seek him. No longer is he at a spot where we've got to go find him. We've got to travel. But God has made himself known, and he's entered into the lives and the hearts of men through the Holy Spirit. We know this to be the beginning of the church because Paul testifies in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13. 
For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. That the spirit baptism makes us a single body, the one body. And we know that body to be the church. Because Paul makes it clear in Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In my flesh I am filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. So when we step back at that, you want to know how the church was built, how the church was designed? Acts 2 is where we go. Acts 2 is where the Spirit comes forth and steps into the lives of men. And verse 4 continues. And they, they is a parenthetical, I've added it. They began to teach, they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So immediately following the birth of the church, immediately following the Spirit going out, the church begins to tell people about the life and work of Jesus Christ. And in the commotion, all the people think these guys are drunk, if you follow the story. Uh, they, they step out in the streets and start testifying about how good God is, and all the people around them are going, are these guys drunk? And you'll remember that Peter stands up and gives the first public sermon of his life. And at some time, it'd be well worth your time to read and study it, because we don't have time to dig into it this morning. But Peter gives such an amazing testimony of who Jesus is and what he accomplished, that the people are left to respond in verse 37 by saying, What should we do? How do I respond to this? And Peter answers them in Acts 2, 38 by saying this. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So as we walk through Acts 2, we find that Peter and the disciples testify to who Jesus was and what he accomplished. And Acts 2.41 tells us the result. A couple of verses later. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. On day one of the church, 3,000 people joined. Not by church hopping. Not by moving into the area. Not because they like this church better than others. 3,000 people came to know the Lord Jesus Christ and joined the church. Now lean into that a little bit and lean into the culture to get that this culture is not an easy believism culture. It's not quite like how our country has been in the past where being a Christian was the most normal thing you could do. See, these guys all walked with the reality that some 90 days ago, they crucified Jesus for what he said. Now Peter's standing up with tremendous boldness, testifying about the one they crucified. Do you think Peter thinks he's going to be killed for that? Absolutely he does. He'd have to. He stood up and he watched them kill Jesus. So when these 3,000 people say, forgiveness of sins, Jesus I want that. They knew who Jesus was too. They knew what they were walking into. This wasn't easy believism. This was a desire to make Jesus their king. 
When we come to the book of Acts, there's long been a discussion about whether when you read passages like this, you make them descriptive, does it describe something that happened, or prescriptive, does it tell us what we should do? And I want to argue that it's both. It describes what happened, but also shows us design. It shows us why we've existed. Now, I'm guessing the vast majority of us have never seen a tongue of fire. And I'm guessing the vast majority of us have never spoken fluently in a language we do not know, only to have large crowds understand us. That's not normal for us, is it? And yet the reality that the church was born to spread the name of Jesus Christ to people who do not know him is absolutely present. And that's absolutely prescriptive. The church in its nature becomes about advancing his name, building his kingdom. Now that's not all we're about. But if it isn't primary to who we are, then we miss the purpose. Not only of the church, but possibly even our own salvation. A passage many of you would be familiar with, 2 Corinthians 5.17. says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's a crucial passage for many of us. We see how God has changed our nature. How he's changed us to be something we weren't. And Christians love to cling to that passage. We love our new nature, and we miss that our nature changes what we do. It changes our essence. So that Paul would continue in the next verse by saying, And all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So even as you walk through the New Testament, you find even as you are saved and Jesus Christ changes your nature, makes you new, he makes you new so that you'll become a reconciler. That you would introduce people to Jesus Christ just as the early church did. See, the church was designed to declare the truth about who Jesus is and what he accomplished at the cross. Now that actually stands into contrast to many modern perceptions of the church. Now I'm not saying any of us would claim this, and I suspect if we sat down and even talked to you about it, you might not even say it. But when we walk into the common cultural practices of the church, many of us have believed the lie that it's about me. That the church exists to make me comfy. The church exists to make me feel happy. The church exists to be the status quo. This past week I read a challenging article written by Tom Rayner, who's a lead researcher for Lifeway Books. In the article he suggested that most church attenders, when asked, will say that they're excited about church growth. And when they pressed in, Almost every single person gave them an exception. Listen to the exceptions. These were their top seven. People would say, I'm really excited about the church growing unless we have to change the worship style. I'm really excited about the church growing unless we have to add more worship services. I'm really excited about the church growing unless I lose my parking spot. 
I'm really excited about the church growing unless somebody sits in my seat. I'm really excited about the church growing as long as the people who come look the same as I do. As long as they dress like I do. As long as they speak like I do. I'm really excited about the church growing unless we have to start spending money on those, those new people. I'm really excited about the church growing unless the new people mess up my current fellowship circles and groups. Unless we have to change the facilities in a way to accommodate the growth. And as you hear that list, maybe some of those exceptions speak to your heart, and maybe they don't. But it underlies the reality that all of us have bought into the perspective that the church has become what I want, what I prefer, what I expect. Play by my rules, do it my way, or I'll find somewhere that does. I was recently listening to a podcast when a Kentucky pastor named Mike Cosper said this, shocking to me. I've probably listened to it two dozen times since. But this was his quote. Our current understanding of Sunday mornings is driven by a revivalism culture where you were coming to an event, where you're coming to be stirred and moved. It's about a performance thing that results in you making further commitments. What Mike was saying, what he continued to say in this podcast, is that the expectation of our culture is that when we come to church, that we'll be moved, we'll be stirred. And if the worship is stirring enough, and if the pastor is stirring enough, then I'll grow. And if it's not, I won't. Now please tell me you see the problem with this. Because what Mike Cosper diagnoses for us is that the majority of churches in America come into it with an expectation of entertainment. Now, they'd never claim that. But they would tell you that if somebody sings off-key, I'm going to let you know. If an instrument gets played poorly, I'm going to let you know. Because I deserve for it to be done that way. They're going to give you this expectation that the worship has to be exactly like I want it. It's got to make me feel a way. And if I don't feel the way I want whether that's a nostalgia or whether that's an emotion, I'm going to let you know. And we expect that the pastor has better be entertaining. Because if he doesn't make me laugh, if he doesn't encourage me, doesn't exhort me in a way that I just want to, oh, if I don't walk away feeling like, man, the word of God hit me, then I'm not going to grow. So we've made it all about what happens on the stage. Rather than recognizing that the principal participants in worship are not the people on the stage. They're the people in the pews. That you're the worshipers. That you come not to receive worship, but to give it. And you come not just to receive exhortation, but to love and exhort one another. That my job in here is to build you up. And to equip you to do ministry, according to Ephesians 4, not make you comfortable and happy. Now, i got a sneaking suspicion some of you are pretty grumpy with me right now. And that's okay. Because the church wasn't designed to make us happy. It's always going to rub us the wrong way. 
When I told people about marriage and said, marriage isn't about you. Some people left grumpy. I know, I got a couple of emails. When I tell you your family's not about you. A couple of people left grumpy. I know, I got a couple of emails. I said, church isn't about you either. And it's not about me. It's about him. Can somebody say amen? It'd make me feel so much better right now. The church is about him. And when we come to faith, we are reconciled to God and called to take on this ministry of reconciliation. Why? Because it's about him. If it was about me, he would have saved me and taken me immediately. But it's not about that. Our salvation is about his completed work. Our ministry is about his completed work. Our gatherings should be about his completed work. Now, Calvary, as we grow, is it always going to be comfortable? No. Is it always going to be convenient? No. In fact, it's going to make most of us uncomfortable and most of us inconvenienced. That's where we need to be reminded that the church isn't about that for us. It's not about our comfort or we'd have lazy boys. It's not about our convenience or we'd have drive-through church. It's about us being together and lifting up the name of Jesus Christ who died on a cross in our place, and for us. So we celebrate his death by choosing to die to ourselves and exalting him, making it about him and not about me. Let's continue in Acts 2. 2.42 says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayers. They, the church, devoted themselves. Devoted here means that they continued and they persisted. And if you pull from verse 47, we find that they did this every day. Over the years, I've had the opportunity to participate in a lot of missions work. I've had the chance to go to Haiti three times. I want to show you a picture. This is a picture of me teaching a group of pastors and leaders about manhood just this is my picture that says I've been to Haiti. Pierre saw it in my office and goes, look, Dad, you've been to Haiti. That's my point. It's an interesting experience stepping into the third world country. Now, I'll tell you, I've been here three times. I don't know everything about Haiti. I've been there three times. I don't know everything about all of Haiti. I can only speak to the context and the culture of the area I was in in Haiti. So this isn't me making vast, vast assertions about the country. But do you know where the church that we met at Do you know when they meet? This is totally fascinating to me. Do you know when they meet? When the pastor starts singing. It was shocking to me. We go to this little church way outside of where? You get on a bus and go like seven hours north of Port-au-Prince. You go to this little town and then we get on another bus and ride another hour out into rural Haiti. All surrounded by farmers. And the church meets... When the pastor goes out on the front porch and starts singing. And what happens when he starts singing is the farmer next to him starts singing. And the farmer next to him starts singing. 
And the farmer next to him starts singing. And in about 20 minutes, all these people gather together and just walk to church and say, cool, let's praise God. It's an absolutely crazy phenomenon. When, when we go here, we'd ask, so when are your church services? Do we need to prepare something for Sunday? And they're like, no, when do you want to have a church service? Um, tomorrow night? Yeah, what time? We don't have watches. Oh, how about we just show up? Good. It, it's a fascinating thing. And I think they get it. They meet when they're called to. And they gather together to pray and worship and hear the word of the Lord. Acts 2 says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. And fellowship gets further defined by the passage as the breaking of bread and praying. The breaking of bread here is a gathering where people gather together to experience a community meal that likely would have involved them taking communion together and praying. What you find is this early church was committed to this idea of regular meetings, of getting together, of participating and eating a meal together and praying together. And while I'm not suggesting that we meet daily, or even when I start singing, their early church was a community that was heavily, heavily invested in one another. And that we should take as prescriptive. The church was designed to be a community of people who lived life together, who knew one another, and they were known. And church, it's possible that you've bought into the idea that church is primarily about attendance. That you come, come here and there, whenever it works. You know some people's names, you shake some hands, just enough to make you feel comfortable. But you're not known. You slide in and you slide out. This was my experience in church, by the way, after college. My goal was to come as often as convenient. If nothing else came up, church seemed like a good idea. But my practice was this. I like to come late and leave early. I really didn't want to talk to anybody. I really didn't want any new friends. I didn't want anyone in my business. I didn't want anyone to get involved with me at all. And at the same time, I would walk in and be jealous of the relationships that other people had. I would walk in and I'd actually blame them for not engaging me. I'd walk in frustrated, mad, late, by the way. And I'd leave early and I'd be mad at them for not wanting to know me, though I didn't want to be known at all. And we find that the same thing can be true in the church now. That we can buy into this belief that church is about attendance. I'll make it every couple of weeks, that's good. And we miss the reality that the church is a community. A gathering of people united in the name of Jesus who know each other and are known. Now I'm not saying you have to know all 200 plus of us. But if we're not regularly breaking bread and praying with believers, we're missing the church. We're missing the very entity that God gave us. See, God's design for us didn't require us to go somewhere and sing and hear teaching. 
Friends, the internet can do all of that for you. And no, their church is popping up on the internet all the time. And the problem with that style of church is that's not what the church was designed for. The church was designed so that we'd be together. So that when you walk through something really hard, you've got some people involved in your life. Some people who are close. Some people who can carry you. The church is a community. By the way, this is a bad time to bring this up. This is our last week of community groups. But we're starting them back at the week of January 10th. You'll note that on your little white sheet. If you've not joined a community group, can I just suggest that to you? They're starting new in January. So you've got like a month and a half to like get over yourself and join one. Um, You'll get to start at the beginning. So it won't be like this new thing that you'll be left out of. But consider joining a community group to experience that kind of community. The passage continues in verse 43. And awe came about every, upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And watch this. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The church was designed to gather together to proclaim Jesus. And the church gathered to experience real and authentic community so we'd be in relationships with one another. And the more the church pursued that, the more the church was blessed. The more these people got into each other's lives, knew each other, heard each other, you see it in the passage. Somebody hears, oh man, he's struggling. Oh, I should sell something, give it to him. That's living in community. Now, I'm not saying that's going to be a prescriptive thing that's going to happen here. I'm not saying go to a community group, lay out your financial needs, everyone's going to sell their stuff and give it to you. But there is something there about the idea of walking in such a close community that people would know your needs, would know them richly, deeply, and would be lifting them to the Father on your behalf. And actually could be put in a place to meet some of them along the way. We find the early church was amazed together what was being done in the name of Jesus. They were sharing, they were gathering, they were worshiping, and they were growing. And if there's one overarching theme about it all, the church was about Jesus. It wasn't about me. It wasn't about you. It was about him. They were together and they were unified because it was about him. Paul speaks abundantly through the New Testament about the unification of believers and why that's so important. And church, lean in and hear this. Satan desires to divide us. Satan desires to divide Calvary Church at Village Green. He desires to divide us. And we have to push back. It's not about us. It's about him. We gather together to proclaim that it's about him. And when we do, when we make him the king, we acknowledge that we are not. 
It's not about me. I'm not the king. When we've walked into this series of design and deception, I hope that you've caught the underbelly of all of, of, all of our teachings. That the underbelly of most of our sin is self-centeredness. My desire to make things about me. My desire to have things my way. To do the things that are right in my eyes. This was the issue of sanctity of life. This was the issue of sexual sin. This was the issue of our identity. This was the issue of relationships, of marriage, of family, and of work. And this is the issue that invades the church. We have to fight off the slithering lives of Satan in our lives, our marriages, our family, and in our church. It's not about me. It's about him. And you can see that in the passage. When we put others' needs before ours, it's about him. When we freely give of our time and resources, it's about him. When we gather together to share life, our struggles, our victories, we're willing to share that which torments us, we're willing to look really weak, it's about him. When we care more about people coming to faith and experiencing real community than our own conveniences and preferences, it's about him. Now, lest you think I'm pouring this out on you, let me make it really plain what a sinner I am. Do you know that in a given week, people come by the church I don't want to talk to? Now, of course, I'm not talking about any of you. (laughs) It's that I have things to do. I come into a given week with a long to-do list, a desire of what I need to get done, and people constantly get in the way. A lot of folks in full-time ministry joke that ministry would be so much easier without the people. (laughs) People stop by and they ask for money. People email me and ask me how Calvinistic of a church we are. I get that email three times a week right now. (laughs) Not answering that. People get sick, they go to the hospital, and to be clear, I'm not saying any of these things are bad. I'm just telling you, confessing to you outright, I'm selfish. I'm telling you that some days I don't want to die to myself. Some days I want simplicity. Some days I want comfort. Some days I just want to sit in my office and have a closed door and just be about what I want it to be about and not subject myself to him at all. And by him I mean God, not the person on the phone or at my door. And I have a sneaking suspicion that that's not just me. You know, sometimes we sing songs I don't like. They're not my preference. It doesn't make me feel the way I want. Maybe I just don't like the words. Maybe I don't like how it's put together. And by the way, that's an honest confession. And in those moments, I'm forced to make a choice. Are we gathered together to meet my needs, to meet my preferences, or are we gathered together to worship him. And in that moment, I have to choose to die to my preferences and choose to worship him. And I got a sneaking suspicion I'm not the only one. You know, sometimes we get to Sunday nights and I have no interest in going to community group. A couple of weeks ago, I wanted to stay home. Sixth game of the World Series was on. The Broncos were playing at night. If there was ever a Sunday I should blame one of my kids for being sick, it was there. 
I don't want to live in authentic relationships with people. In my nature, I really don't want to be known. Because in my nature, I don't think most of you would really like me if you really knew me. I want it to be about me. I love what Eric Howard shared a couple of months ago in community groups when he said he always hated going, but never regretted it. I feel that way sometimes. And in that moment, I have to choose to die to myself, to die to my selfishness, to choose to be in authentic community with other people, to choose to go and live close to other people, to live life with other people, to share my struggles, my frustrations, my weaknesses, and sometimes my strengths, my victories, my experiences, because it can give hope. Now, I can give you a hundred more examples of my selfishness and my sinfulness, but the further I go with that, the more likely I get fired shows up. But the point of it is, is that I desire to be the king, just like you do. And I have to fight it, just like you do. And I think by now you get the idea that we all struggle with this reality. We want to embrace it being about me. We want to embrace it being about my preferences, my desire, my wants. And I'm not just talking about the church. I'm talking about our work, our family, our relationship, our children, you name it. And the gospel always calls us to die to ourselves, to be redeemed, to live redeemed, and to live a life that's more about him than it is about me. Friends, if we walked through this whole passage, we would quickly find that the church is primarily about the proclamation of the gospel. And the church is about dying to ourselves. And the church is primarily about him. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you so much that while we were still sinners, you died for the ungodly. That passage speaks to me. While I was still in the middle of my sin, Father, every week I struggle with wanting things to be about me or my preferences. I want my kids to obey in a store because it reflects me. I want my family to look a certain way or to do certain things because of me. Father, my selfishness, my self-centeredness has affected every part of my life. And I confess that publicly to you. And Father, I stand before a church that is inevitably struggling with the same sins. So Father, we confess to you our selfishness and our self-centeredness in all these areas. And ask Jesus that you would allow us to die to ourselves. That the name of your, that you would be exalted. That the name of Jesus Christ would be exalted. And that his death would become more and more and more evident in my life and in the body of this church's life. That we would see you work. That we would proclaim your name and that we watch people be added to your kingdom. God, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.